millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Welcome to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Joining me, of course, as she does for every one of these special greatest moral podcasts of our generations is Lynn Doe, fellow Bertha fellow. G'day, Lynn. Hello, hello. So good to be back. (laughs) This is our second greatest moral podcast of our generation. A huge thank you to everyone who listened to our Kevin Rudd episode. Uh, I think I had a lot of good feedback from that, particularly around people who love the nitty-gritty of climate backstabbing. Yeah, the interview was amazing, and I think it just makes me even more eager to wait for when those cabinet files get released. Uh, You know, I'll be one of those (laughs) geeks eagerly awaiting exactly what happened, and we'll finally know who was the liar after all. (laughs) Uh, This, of course, is out on the Irrational Fear Feed. Every month we bring you an in-depth conversation about climate change with climate legends and a little bit more about who is on our podcast a little later on. But first of all, a big thank you to our new Irrational Fear Patreon members, including Nick with a K, Elisa Yeager, Shelley Carr, Simone Kavanagh and Tim Stevenson chipping in to help Irrational Fear. Jump to patreon.com forward slash Irrational Fear to support the podcast. Another way to support Irrational Fear is to offset the carbon emissions from your car with Go Neutral. For every $90 sticker, Go Neutral will buy 3.5 tonnes of carbon offsets, which is about the average yearly emissions for a car. And then five bucks of that comes to us. To Go Neutral, click on the link in the show notes. I'm recording my end of Irrational Fear on Gadigal land in the Urinate Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goombog. For short. All right, Lynn, let's get into our climate news for this week. Story number one, Australia joins the US, China and Russia in refusing to sign a leader's pledge on biodiversity. Is is this any kind of surprise that we are with uh, the US, Russia and China on this, Lynn? Never, never a surprise. But I mean, last year during the Madrid uh, climate negotiations, we were with Saudi Arabia. And given, you know, everything that we're hearing about how koalas are going extinct, the billions of animals that were wiped out, unfortunately, during the recent bushfires, you'd think we'd care a little bit more. And there's a lot of similarities between Australia and Saudi Arabia, particularly about the way we treat our journalists. That is definitely true. Um, Alarming, but we still call ourselves a democracy. So (laughs) it's a scary path that we're headed down. Now, the Morrison government said it refused to sign this global pledge uh, endorsed by 64 other countries uh, committed to reverse biodiversity loss because it was inconsistent with Australia's policies, namely net zero by 2050, which pretty much the rest of the world is signed up to. Uh, Australia has committed to net zero, but before 2100, which is absolutely hilarious. I mean, we won't be alive then. So, (laughs) you know, um, I guess for us, that's how we have to feel 
better about it. That's how I go to sleep at night. And can I say thank God I won't be alive then because it's going to be too hot to live. Kit and Joshi, uh, the climate hero on Twitter, uh, did tweet uh, some calculations of his own, which were taken from the government's own data a few months back, and he suggested that we're actually on track to meet our net zero targets by 2300. So that's about the double length of Australia's colonised period. (laughs) The numbers at that point are just um, eye-watering, really. It's really hard to comprehend how our policies account for multiple, multiple generations from now. It's so interesting. Uh, This is a leader's pledge put together by the WWF and the UN. I jumped over to the leader's pledge page because anybody can sign up to it and sign their organisation up to it. So I've put you, dear listener, behind the pledge. Uh, So Irrational Fear is now signed up to this pledge. And so we're putting our 10,000 listeners a month behind the pledge. Good on us. Yay, biodiversity. I emailed Terry Butler as well because she had some comments to say about, you know, why SCOMA didn't sign up. She had At this point in time, she hasn't got back to me whether she actually signed up to the pledge herself. Uh, but then I went to the website and if you, are at, if you are a head of state of a country, you can actually click through to a form uh, and sign up your country. So I actually went through and signed us up as well. Uh, but... Uh, they haven't got back to me is to verify my identity. I, I said I was the um, the Minister for Climate Action and, and Fear. That's what I said. <laughs> they, they know that doesn't exist in Australia. Although, you know, it's like so funny given who our head of state actually is, is that the royal family is all behind biodiversity. Like Prince Charles, huge supporter. Well, this is the thing. This is absolutely the thing. So the Google Doc says head of state for your country and technically our head of state is the Queen. So maybe we are already signed up by default. Well, you know, one of the benefits of colonisation and the Commonwealth and the British Empire is potentially we can follow in the footsteps of what the UK is doing right now. I like that. If Tony Abbott was, in, was Prime Minister and Lizzie asked him to, he'd probably sign up to that pledge. <laughs> who, who would have thought? I, I used to think I was a Republican um, in terms of, you know, supporting the Republic, but here we are, all for the monarchy. Story number two. Exxon's plan for surging carbon emissions revealed in leaked documents. Now, this story is interesting. It, as, as the rest of the kind of fossil fuel industry is planning on phasing out its emissions, Exxon over the next five years is planning on increasing them by 17%. Are you surprised at all by this, Lindo? I feel like Exxon has written the playbook on big organisations and companies that we can't trust. Rio Tinto has just proven that again in Australia. It almost doesn't matter what they otherwise say they're going to be doing because there's always something that they're trying to sweep under the rug. Yeah, this is really interesting. Like BHP, I saw put out an article, or somebody put out an article about BHP actually doing further oil exploration, even though they've signed a pledge to get out of the fossil fuel game. Um, But they're still exploring for fossil fuels. I guess they're searching for it so they can go, put up a big sign saying, don't dig here. I guess that's what's bad for planning on doing. Protect it. Protect it once you know that it's there. Uh, it, it's almost like, you know, these big companies, someone in the PR department signing up to all of these pledges, maybe the biodiversity one even, but then just, you know, there's another part of it where engineers or whoever are going off and exploring new oil fields. Um, it's just really reprehensible really. 17% is really significant for a company like Exxon. Uh, If its Mm -hmm. plans are realised, Exxon would add to the atmosphere uh, the annual emissions of a small developed nation or 26 coal-fired power plants. That's, That's insane over the next five years. Absolutely wild. Um, It's interesting that you've been encouraging listeners to go neutral with their uh, carbon emissions from their car. Do you think people will now change their mind about where they fill up? 
Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm only going to fill up with Shell. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Your options are buddy. Sorry, that was a bit of a they trick are, question. They, trick they question. are. They are can I say they are extremely limited, particularly around Bondi? I'm pretty sure Mobile Exxon is, is the only place I can actually fill up. <laughs> Well, the idea for there you is... to be a good carbon advocate is to drive even further in your car to the nearest suburb Lynn, where there's a Shell petrol station. I don't you, think that logic works out. Are you, are you telling me I'm going to have to drive from Bondi to Rose Bay BP to fill up now? Oh, my God. But what? you're carbon neutral, so it It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Okay. Now, Matt Canavan uh, has been slammed for his use of the uh, Black Lives Matter slogan and he's got a ute and he's got black coal matters on the, on the back of his ute. Uh, tell us a bit about this story, Glenn. <laughs> where, where do we even start sometimes? Uh, when I, like, wake up to the news in Australia, I'm like, of course that just happened. Of course that just happened. Um, given the way that we treat our Indigenous people in this country, pretty reprehensible, given the way that we have, you know, gone onto other people's country uh, and, like, you know, built new coal power stations doesn't make sense. I think the only good that I could sort of try to see from this is maybe it then rules out the argument that we have in this country for supporting brown coal, which, you know, whilst um, all coal's not good, brown coal's even more inefficient, even more dirty. So at least we're prioritising within, you know, the scale of bad things we already do. I can't believe they've appropriated this activist language for their own activist language. It it really hurts my head a little bit. Yep. Well, you know, they're borrowing from the people who do do things well. So maybe this <laughs> is a sign that um, campaigning for Black Lives Matter really is working. Just another example of white people appropriating black culture. <laughs> yep. Never ending. And finally, let's talk about the 2021 budget, Lynn. Uh, Keaton Joshi, as we've mentioned before, is a fantastic tweeter on climate. You've got to follow him, K-E-T-A-N-J-O. He did this great tweet this week while when the budget was happening. He took the budget speech, hit Control-F and searched for the word climate. It appeared only once in Josh Frydenberg's speech. The sentence was, $1.9 in new funding uh, as part of our energy plan to support low emissions of renewable technologies, helping to lower emissions and climate change. Followed by the sentence, we are also helping to unlock five key gas basins. Isn't that just, doesn't that just symbolise everything that Australia is about when it comes to emissions action, Glenn? Exactly. It feels like that one mention was just a, see, see, we did talk about it. Don't think about it in context though. (laughs) I think that was actually my tweet as well off the back of Keaton's was like, see, they did mention it. They did say climate. We did say climate. We said it. They didn't think about us. No, exactly. Um, you know, it's about making sure that everyone gets represented, even if in this case, representation literally meant nothing. <laughs> so true, Lynn. What I love about the budget speech every time it comes around, it's kind of like our own version of the State of the Union speech, but it's really, really shit. And it's way wonkier. I have never been invited to a budget party, but I have been to my fair share of State of the Union ones in the US. Somebody please invite Lindo to their budget party. Or an end of financial year one. I am open to all super geeky economic uh, party conversations. End of financial year ones are the best because often companies use that instead of Christmas and so they treat their employees very well. So that you definitely want to get on that gravy train. Uh, okay, good to know, good to know. All right, for this week's podcast, we bring you a big conversation I had last week with Osha Gunsberg and, and Mike Cannon-Brooks at the Smart 
Energy Summit. What I liked about this, it was um, a good chat with two really random people, you know, Osher Gunsberg and Mike Cannon-Brooks. What do these people have in who common? Who are they again? Yeah, okay. Well, you know, for those who don't know, uh, Osher is the host of The Bachelor and Mike Cannon-Brooks is the software developer for Atlassian and, and energy entrepreneur. Um, what do you think these people have in common Lynn, do they have anything in common at all? Well, honestly, on the surface, not so much. I think when I look at the image, I'm like, I am confused. It feels like definitely a start of a joke of, you know, three very random people walk into a bar, what happens? Uh, But I think this is sort of the good thing about what's happening in Australia is we have so many people who you think wouldn't care about climate change getting on board because they recognise we all have a stake in our future. I mean, in the chat, I discuss it further, but I feel like the only thing that really kind of draws these two together is that probably a decade ago, climate change wasn't the central part of their work, but now it is, as as with all of us. Um, many of you might be wondering, where are the women on the panel? Oh, I asked this as well. I asked this from the organisers as well. Um, they said, what more do you want from me? I've got, I got one of the most famous per- people on TV and I've got one of the biggest billionaires. And I said, well, I reckon there's either a billionaire woman or a, or a famous woman who could also be on this panel as well. So anyway, they, they said that was enough. Without further ado, please enjoy this chat with Mike Cannon-Brooks and Osha Gunsberg. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. To many in Australia, Osha is a handsome face and has been at the front of many of the biggest TV moments in Australia, including you know, stuff like Channel V, Australian Idol, The Masked Singer, uh, Bachelor franchise. Uh, there hasn't been a rose ceremony he hasn't been part of. But what you may not know about Osha is that he is also a student of the world, deeply connected with thought leaders around the globe. Osha has been part of Amsterdam's Think School of Creative Leadership. He's interviewed some of the most interesting brains of culture, science and society. Uh, and on his podcast, Better Than Yesterday, he's managed to pull that bachelor audience into a very interesting deep thinking space so don't be fooled by his seventy thousand dollar hairstyle Osha's brain is switched on to climate change and he regularly profiles activists entrepreneurs in the climate space he was even on q a's climate solutions panel earlier this year welcome osha Thanks, Dan. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here um, to be a part of this event. is uh, a real privilege, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Q&A, our other guest today was on the show on Monday. He's a real jet setter. In fact, when he was eight years old, Mike Cannon-Brooks managed to buy his first computer on frequent flyer points, opting for an Amstrad PC-20, a choice he still regrets to this very day. <laughs> he is the co-founder of Atlassian, team collaboration software company. He's a passionate clean energy evangelist. He's also one of Australia's great muckrakers. Probably in a previous era, we would have called him a larrikin. Uh, he uses his change for the better, however. Mike has co-opted the term fair dinkum power from Scott Morrison and turned it into a war cry for renewables. Uh, And using not much more than Twitter and a few phone calls, Mike was a driving force behind Australia getting one of the world's largest lithium-ion batteries, which was only superseded by the one they put in the back of Peter Dutton. Uh, We are... (laughs) Welcome, Mike Cannon-Brooks. Thanks. It's good good to be here, mate. I like that. was quite an intro. I don't know where you found out about the PC-20. Uh, I'm jealous of Osha's microphone, though, that he does. You guys do have some some good microphone game going on there. That's all right, Mike. I can. I know a guy. I can sort you. <laughs> you up. Um, well, uh, before we get away, let's have a message from our sponsor. It's the largest recession in history, and the PM's gone parliamental. Coronavirus stimulus is said to be slashed. 
JobKeeper was $1,500 a fortnight, now $1,200 a fortnight. JobSeeker was $550 a fortnight, now just $250 a fortnight. Economic stimulus reduced by 30 40 and 50% off. The unemployed have never been more motivated to get a job that doesn't exist. But wait, there's more. During the largest ever climate emergency, the PM is giving billions to the fossil fuel industry for gas plants, pipelines and fracking. Instead of ending emissions, he's making more of them. Every day is opposite day. Taking the money for the poor and giving it to the rich. You've got to have a go to get a go before it's all gone, gone, gone. Terms and conditions apply for donations of $6 million or more to the Liberal Party. See the PDS for details. Now, fellas, I thought as a way of an icebreaker so we can get to know each other, get to understand our own uh, our own ideas behind climate change. I thought we'd just do a little climate quiz. Uh, I've got the answers here. They were given to me by Angus Taylor's uh, office, but I want you to answer as truthfully as possible. Uh, so, first of all, let's get the quiz underway. Folks, what is the best way to lower emissions? Osha and Mike, what is the best way to lower emissions? Just jump in whenever you're ready. Uh, Osha. Osha, go, Osha. Uh, Dig things out of the ground, uh, sell them once and to somebody overseas and then burn them. Oh, yes, that's that's correct. That's correct. Oh, very good. All right, next question. Uh, Of course, Angus wrote, uh, the best way to lower emissions is to make more emissions. That's what Angus asked me to let you know. All right, next question. What is the one technology that's going to save the planet suffocating from greenhouse gas. What is the one technology that's going to save the planet from suffocating with greenhouse gas? Trees. Trees? Oh, I'm sorry. It's gas. Greenhouse gas. Oh, right. More gas. Yeah, more gas. More gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What is the best way to strengthen ties with our island neighbours and security partners in the Pacific? What is the best way to strengthen ties with our island neighbours? Osha. Osha allow said Pacific to rise up and swallow them. Yes, that's great. Very, very good, Usher. You've done, you've done your work here. All right, excellent. Final question. The world is meeting again at COP26 in Glasgow next year. What's the best way to impress our global trading partners at that conference? What is the best way? Oh, uh, uh, Osher. Again, Osher again. Shirt fronting. <laughs> Shirt fronting. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm not. So, I'm not sure that's quite right. The answer is, I'm afraid it's take to it's a, to take a hodgepodge of mythical technology solutions not proven to work, and once again be the bung wheel on the supermarket trolley of progress and drag the rest of the world to the ten items or less line. But uh, Osha, congratulations, you have won the quiz. Well done. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh, oh, well I really done. didn't want to get that right. Uh, well, it's great to have um, you both here. Uh, now we're all awake. Uh, let's get stuck into the conversation. A satirist and a TV host and a software engineer all walk into a bar and decide to make climate change the centre of what they do. How does that even happen? For us three, climate change is now part and parcel of our work, but as entertainers and creators of things 10 years ago, probably you know, really wasn't as important. Mike, let's start with you. How have you managed to kind of put uh, climate at the center of kind of what you're doing right now? Look, I think it's obviously a really, really important problem, if not the most existential challenge for humanity, depending on where on the spectrum you fall. I'd be towards the latter end of that spectrum, personally. Um, and I don't think it's going to take just, you know, green-minded folks to solve. Mm. But if you ask me, it's as much a, an economic problem and a finance problem and a, a creative problem, a storytelling problem, and, and we need all parts of society to get involved and solve that. Um, 
like I've always been interested in technology and the economics of things, business and other bits and pieces. So I happen to have some strengths that are super useful, but I, I think it's a good example on your panel of you need lots of different types of people to be tackling and attacking this problem. Well, was there a single moment for you? Was like, was there like an aha moment that kind of kind of brought you to this issue that you were like, well, you know, I got to do something. I can, I can do something. Look, certainly the big, big battery from your intro was a large turning point for me personally. Um, sort of got myself involved in a bit of a bingle there, and then, um, <laughs> you know, when we got it solved. Again, the reason I think that was such an amazing event is rarely have we had a lot of people shit on an idea, then the idea get built, then the idea gets proven in such a short period of time. Right? You've, you've, you've never worked. In, you've never worked in television, Mike. You've never worked in television. That happens all the time. <laughs> well, but it, it was really instructive for me. A because I had to learn an, a huge amount of content personally and got much more into the electricity system and how it works and why it works and 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 how that affects climate change and emissions. And it was sort of a big start of a big journey for me, I suppose. But secondly, to see all of the stories and politics and other things behind it, and then to have that sort of laid um, laid bare really quickly was was just a fascinating exercise for me as someone who just says, that's just broken. Like I like fixing things that are broken. That just seemed unjust. That was not right. Uh, people weren't saying the correct things. And I was perhaps naive before that. I think that is a really beautiful phrase, like fixing things that are broken. Um, Osha, what about you? How does how does someone go from hosting television shows in Hollywood to kind of being a climate change communicator? Um, I think it, for me, it's because it became an undeniable problem, Dan. You know, it became something that it was just no, I was no longer able to ignore. Um, if you'll allow me to virtual, virtue signal for just a moment, it was about 20, <laughs> 22 years ago that I stopped eating meat when I – you know, I, I sort of started to struggle with how much resources were required to create uh, the same sort of calorie of plant protein versus animal protein. And I just couldn't get by with that. I'm like, that's a bit weird. And that was kind of coupled with, you know, I'd seen with my own eyes, I'd gone uh, snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef in 1992 and again in 2004 in on the same spot. And I, it was, I was just bamboozled and, and horrified at, at, at what I saw. And, and as the years roll on and the conversations aren't getting any more progressive, the need to start to talk about this stuff is bigger and bigger. I think for, for me, oh, we can talk about it later as far as, you know, the kind of conversations that I had around this, but Mike's got a really important point there that there's so much more going on um, that, trying to drive conversations about it is, is really, really the only thing that I'm possibly able to do. I mean, I'm not Mike, I can't organize a massive battery to happen, uh, with, you know, the way that he was able to do. Um, but I can have conversations and I can, you like, if it gets to the point where the bloke accounts, the roses on your television is talking about climate change. It's time we did something. Okay. <laughs> I really like that. That's great. Um, Mike, um, do you, this is a kind of a, a strange question to be asking, but I, you know, I certainly ask it from a, a good faith position as someone who has worked in climate kind of activism for a while. Uh, there may be some people out there who feel like you're a Johnny come lately to this space. Do you feel any kind of resentment <laughs> from, from folks out there? I mean, are you out to steal uh, climate campaigners limelight? Uh, I mean, simple answer is no, nah, man, I'm trying to help people solve a problem. I've been lucky enough to get myself in a position where when I speak my mind, people listen, which is great. And like Osher is for a totally different reason, right? When he speaks, people listen. And to solve the problem, as I said, 
um, I think you need a lot of different things, right? And so while, yeah, sure, I get on Twitter every so often um, and cause a bit of a stink, I mean, uh, have a very large fund now. I think we're north of a billion dollars in personal investments between my wife and I in sustainability initiatives. Um, so, you know, whenever people say you haven't put your money where your mouth is, I'm like, oh, that's not quite true. Um, and, you know, fortunate enough to be able to back large projects and really make a difference and, and change things. Um, have a very different storytelling ability to Osha because you come from a technology and economics point of view where you can say, hey, I fervently believe solving this problem is, a, is an economic problem. It's as much a finance issue as a wholesale thing. I'm glad you just had Emma on before. Um, as it is a technology issue, right? I firmly, we don't need a another panel. We need ways of getting more panels out more quickly and that becomes a finance equation, right? We can, we can talk yeah. about that. But the nexus of technology and science and economics is is a really important point to have uh, communicated. As well as that, I've got, you know, um, I don't know, I suppose abilities to, to, you know, talk to politicians and talk to opportunities, you'd call them, amazing opportunities, right? And, and it's great. Often when I talk to them, I'm like trying to convince them to see how the future is going to be. It's almost the, uh, as I said to someone else, the curse of people that live in technology is we see what's going to happen 10, 20 years down the line. We live in a disruptive constant world. That's what we do. Well, and here you're like, well, this is how it works. And they're like, oh, no, no, no but, you know, power stations have run like this for 30 years. And you're like, no, you're operating on... 1982 economics like this is not it does just not how it works today so I just love I just love watching you on Q&A on Monday and just the ability to cut through politicians speak with just in effect effectively you didn't say oh, what you're saying is bullshit but the way you said it <laughs> said oh that sounds like bullshit mate <laughs> I, was, I was warned not to use the word bullshit which is why I used the word bunkum uh, oh, right, I don't know where right, that came right, from right. in the moment but uh probably but a good I, word I wasn't I just, one on this one, so I hope that was all right. Oh, no, I think you're allowed to say whatever you um, like on this one. Yeah, look, let's say politicians have a tough job, though, mate, because they, they're they trying to get elected, right? Almost like their primary goal is to get elected and then their second goal is to get something done. Yeah. And I, I don't think it should be that way around, but that's the reality of, of of what's going on, right? And so if you don't have to get elected, you can say, well, the correct answer is actually to do this. Let me explain to you why that answer is correct rather than... Like, let me give the answer that's correct enough to get me elected, but will make some form of progress. You, you both, both of you, Mike and Osh, have been on Q and A. Mike, last night uh, on Monday night, you were you're very much facts and figures, driving home um, what you know, and driving home a vision of what could, life could be. Osha, your experience was a little different on Q and A. It was, it was had different kind of words attached to it. You know, very emotional kind of. Uh, Hope and grief were all tied into that. Um, Ash, what, what was that experience like being on Q and A and kind of talking about climate on Q and A for you? Well, for for me, if anybody knows my story, it was initially it was quite terrifying um, because I actually had quite a, a horrible episode um, of. Uh, uh, climate anxiety that tipped up into actually episodes of, of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions. And I was actually, when I was living in, in North America at the time, I was living in Venice Beach and I would go for a run down the beach and I would, I'd see the ocean swallowing the houses along the boulevard there. It was, it was really, really horrible. Mm. Um, and so it's still, you know, it's tricky. I'm, you know, I'm feeling anxiety having this conversation right now. But um, for me, 
being with that discomfort, being with that is the only antidote that there is to this. And being in action is the only antidote that there is to climate anxiety. Um, you can pretend that it's not there. Like a cancer diagnosis, you can wish it doesn't exist and you can carry on buying packs of durries. You can just keep going and pretend everything's going to be fine. But you know that thing is metastasizing inside your body and is eating you from the inside. Similarly, we just kind of have to be with it. We have to be with how grievous we need to feel you know and i did see it across the summertime when i started to see it in other people's eyes people were talking to me because they'd read my book and they were like are you all right i'm like i actually am because i can see the fear that i saw in myself in other people now and i get the feeling that i'm not i'm not alone you know obviously they aren't experiencing what i was experiencing because my fear was uh, an irrational fear dan um, <laughs> but uh um, they get it and the only antidote once you've had that time to grieve and you once you start to realize it, I think this is why conversations about climate are so hard because once you start to realize like, hang on, we'd, we've done what? And even if we did everything tomorrow, it would still be worse for like 20 years. What? Like that's a horrible thing to suddenly realize. Mm. And of course it's confronting and people don't want to talk about it and giving people space to feel that is important and yeah. allowing them to be with that grief because it's only once you've sat in it and gone right then, well, I guess waterfalls off glaciers aren't a good thing. Um, what can I do? And then you move into action. And that's really the only thing. And that's clearly what I was trying to talk about on Q&A. It was like being in action is the only antidote to climate anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and, Mike, you are a person of action. You, you, we were just talking about kind of your ability to kind of uh, leapfrog competitors and innovate. Uh, and to use that overused Wayne Gretzky quote, you know, skating where the puck is going to be. Is Australia skating where the puck is going to be? Look, I don't think we are, but I think we should be. I think perhaps, I think that the climate change problem, let's face it, the climate crisis writ large is an incredibly hard problem to solve, right? And part of the reason it's an incredibly hard problem to solve is because it's a prisoner's dilemma by nature, right? Anytime you have someone bullshit you and say, oh, we're only like a couple of percent of the problem, so why do we bother? Let's, let's, it's like, okay, you can get upset about that, but it's going to require the entire world to come together and, and solve this, right? However, for Australia, we have this amazing opportunity which should frustrate us even more because we actually have an opportunity in this. It's not just doing our 2%. It's the ability for us to build literally the future of our country. And I, I think when we talk about skating to where the puck's going to be, it's not about solving. Again, this is where, you know, long ago now, I was all about 200% renewables because just literally it is a thing that makes people think. What do you mean 200%? It's because this is an opportunity for us. We've never been able to have more energy than we need until you think about it and go, actually, that's all we do export is energy. Well, that's not all we export. But when we talk about fossil fuels, we are exporting energy. Yeah. All we're saying is we need to evolve that to export a different type of energy. That's an opportunity for us. And we have just such an amazing opportunity, not just resources. You've probably had lots of people on the last two days talking about sun and wind and how we could power the entire world five times over from Australia, et cetera. That's all totally true. We also have the opportunity in the finance community, in the talent we have here. If you think about anybody that's built large scale infrastructure projects, I don't care if you're building a coal mine or a large energy export project of a different kind, you need large scale project management, you need project finance, you need engineering, you need electricians, you need all sorts of different bits and people to make this. We have all that expertise in Australia and we have the resources and the talent and we need to get people back to work in massive numbers. We're talking about skating to where the puck's going to be. 
the single greatest frustration at the moment is that we don't see this as an opportunity, an economic opportunity that we should be embracing, which is like never before. Five years ago, it wasn't true, right? We didn't have the cost models and stuff that we do today. That that would be skating to where the puck is. I think, you know, the the notion of 200% renewables or 500% renewables totally blows my mind. It's like, yeah, of, of course. Like it to- that totally makes sense. And it really annoys me when you, when we're hearing at the moment, particularly with hydrogen that came out in the technology roadmap and how hydrogen's going to be made with gas, brown hydrogen. And it's like, what are you, like, what are you doing when we've got all this other energy we can use to make hydrogen and we've got the water. We are girt by water. We are girt by the resources that we need. We, we like we're girt by sun and water. Like girt, we are, I think girt. Don't worry. Anyway, so anyway, I get really annoyed when I hear these you know myopic ideas that kind of lock us into into fossil fuels when it's so obvious that that we could execute on something far more innovative. I should say that we we have a sun drenched land yeah. right, with boundless <laughs> plains that are windswept. Yeah, so where you can you can keep going down lots of poetry and be like, we literally wrote this a long time ago. Uh, don't 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 do that. Someone will write it write it down and put it in Comic Sans and email it to their uncle, and it'll be used as irrefutable evidence against climate change. Um, so, uh, Osha, for you, who is um, someone who is kind of globally minded yourself, like what what would you like to see Australia take to uh, Glasgow next year in terms of in terms of a plan? Um. Look, I think the, the most important thing, as, as extraordinarily uh, humongous as the, the investment that Mike is, is working on with his wife and, you know, the other people that we've heard over the last two days, we really are going to have to make our country safe for foreign capital uh, in, the, in long-term policy. We're really going to have to make it safe because if we're going to get out of this, we are absolutely 100% going to need foreign investment. We're going to need investors to feel safe and that their investments will be good for 20, 30 more years here in Australia. And that's what that's what's going to have to happen. When I first went overseas to study a couple of years ago, uh, anyone that's talked to a Dutch person will understand the directness. Uh, Hi, I'm from Australia. Oh, really? Um, what's going on with your country? Why did you do that thing with a carbon tax? Why, why do you still dig up so much coal? And I found myself like having to apologize to this classroom full of people. We are at enormous risk of being overlooked by the international community and the international investment community. I think the days of Australia being like, oh, that kind of scruffy larrikin that gets a ruffle over here and a pat on the bum and off you go, you're not little schoolboy, that's gone over. If we're not clever, we're just going to get left out of the opportunity, the extraordinary global opportunity that's ahead of us. And countries with sun and wind uh, and boundless planes to spare, will uh, they'll be the ones that, that get the cake and we will be sitting around going, all right, I guess it is a South Pacific peso, you know. <laughs> It is, I mean, it, it is so strange seeing how back we are in a whole bunch of things. Uh, Mike, you, you have been having conversations with a lot of polit- politicians. The Liberal government is all of a sudden becoming a market interventionist, you know, with what they're doing with gas. Uh, but I had a chat with New South Wales Energy Minister Matt Keane on my podcast a few weeks ago, and he actually said very few, very few Liberals are actually into fossil fuels. If, if that's the case, why do we have the situation today where the federal government is really backing fossil fuels, but the states and territories are leading the charge on renewables. Like what is that, what is that disconnect between the states and the federal, federal uh, politicians? How many hours do you have to answer that? I think we've um, only got 25 minutes, but. <laughs> look, look, I, I think for sure the states are 
taking charge, which is awesome. You could argue to be to be charitable. It's one of the positives of the way that our federation is constructed, that we do have different groups that can kind of move forward in different ways. Um, I think obviously Matt's doing a great job in New South Wales. We have a lot of other states that are doing an amazing job. I would remind people that the ACT is 100% renewable now, uh, and that's where the parliamentarians federally sit in Parliament House. So that always makes me... Uh, uh, feel good that we have one of the few only um, in fact, renewably in, powered parliament houses in the world. In fact, Mike, um, it's the wind from all those politicians that gets those windmills going. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Thank yeah, you. You yeah. can see yourself out, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could write for the Daily Telegraph with puns like that. So. <laughs> um, look, I think it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue, right? It, the federal issue obviously involves lots of different um, complexities that the, the, the state-driven issues don't. Right, but we have to, we have to work this out, and and again, we have net zero commitments. I believe in every state and territory now, but not federally. So there's a lot of argument about whether it matters federally. Does it actually matter? And the answer is, I think it still does matter, but it doesn't matter as much as it would have done if we didn't have one. Right. So I do think we are getting that moving in the right direction. There are certain things that are federally controlled that we need to move forward on. And, and to be fair to them, they've done, put the gas stuff aside for a second, the renewable energy infrastructure investments they're making transmission-wise, they're great. Like we totally need those and they have to be largely federally done. Um, they announced, you know, for Star of the South and other things that they are federally, finally, you would argue they took too long. Okay, great. We are where we are. We're going to move forward. Um, uh, framework for offshore wind and offshore other things. Again, we have massive offshore resources. Price of offshore has converged to basically the same as price of onshore now. So they are moving in the right direction. Would we like them to move faster? Sure. Does it help to talk and keep pushing and keep moving? Yes, I, I think it really does. I think the, you know, we'll operate I, state and federal. We need both. Yeah, I understand that. But, I mean, with all this, with the state with the state territories, with the states and territories all committing to net zero by 2050, it shouldn't be hard for the federal government to come out and say, yeah, we are going to commit to net zero by 2050 because the states are doing it. So we're going to absolutely do it. And it's, it's, it's like pure leadership play. And it doesn't, it doesn't dog whistle to fossil fuel industries or their base or anything like that. By having a, a flag in the ground, everyone can run towards it. And coal is still going to be mined. There's gas that's still going to be pumped, but it's a federal signpost that says, yeah, we're, we are also good actors in the world. Like it feels like this, oh. it's, a, it's an opportunity completely missed and it sends the wrong signal to our neighbours and, and other people where, you know, other people in, in the world we have to deal with. Absolutely. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. In Madrid, we were an international prior, right? Three countries blew up those talks, us, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And that's not a club that you generally want to be a member of when it comes to basically what, what you're doing, international diplomacy, et cetera, right? Why did we do that? Over Kyoto credits, right? Like for all the bullshit you want to put around it, that is the, literally the reason that we did that. The Europeans were trying to make the credits that we're trying to apply for, which, by the way, should never have been. They were not written into the agreement. It's total bullshit. I forget. It was, on, was it on Q&A? Someone else said it's like, going to your second marriage and saying, oh, I did a lot of dishes in the first one, honey, so I don't have to do any in the second marriage. I was like, that is the best. That's why we need creative storytellers like Usher. And th that was like the explanation. That is literally what we're trying to say is it's a different accounting system in Paris and Kyoto. Like they're completely different. 
Yeah. But we were not good internationally. How many years can you turn up and be not good internationally and then ask for other things? And we need strategic international diplomacy in our region. We want to be a world-leading group. We have to have that. Yeah. Um, if we had showed up in Glasgow, and that should have been right now, without anything, we would have been laughed out of the room. I, uh, yeah, I get the feeling. I so get the feeling we're still... I get, uh, I get the feeling we're still going to be laughed out of the room with this technology roadmap, but I don't know if that'll change between now and then. Osha, we can't show up with just the technology roadmap in Glasgow in 12 months' time and expect to have any uh, respect on the international community when it comes to climate and emissions. Yeah, we'll, we'll I, I lose all our... I don't believe we can show up with just that. We'll lose all our power again. Osha, in this space, leadership is hard, and especially in you know the climate space, everyone has the ability to unlock their own personal power to affect change. You're a solo operator, though, but, but you have enormous power in reaching audiences. Can you kind of paint us a picture of how you use your personal power to try and affect change in for positive ways in this space? I'm just another middle-aged white guy in the public <laughs> eye talking about something that, uh, you know, he feels is a, you know, compassionate thing. Yeah. Dan, and, as, know, pe- as many people have pointed out to me on Twitter, uh, this is what this panel is. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, the three whitest yeah. dudes in the room. Um, look, I've been in one way or another in the corner of people's television, like in the corner of people's living rooms for the past 21 years or so. So I, that buys me about an extra four seconds of your attention you know, um, because they go, Oh, that's that guy. Oh yeah. The thing. What's he talking about? That gives me about an extra four seconds. And a lot can happen in that four seconds. A lot can happen as far as getting people to consider there might actually be something going on here. You may actually have a lot more power than you, than you realize. Um, and, and just trying to, I guess, you know, model through, I mean, I've had a lot of success on my podcast through having conversations about like just modeling what a conversation about mental health can look like. And that has been extraordinarily helpful to a lot of people. And it's been quite profound as, as far as affecting change. Similarly, I, I try to have um, conversations on my on my podcast that actually sound like two adults discussing this challenge and the incredible opportunities. Because I think as a nation, we plunge, like I'm just trying to feel a gaping, aching chasm of getting the feeling like there's an adult in the room. Um, that causes extraordinary anxiety in the community. We know that our government believes in science. That's how we crushed the curve on COVID. All right. We know that they're willing to spend money on things that mean something to them. They just don't want to spend money on this. We know they're not people who don't believe in graphs. They're at graphs. There's cur- there's there's curves, there's curves, there's things, there's capacity of hospital capacity that we are all very aware of. Yeah. They've yeah. shown us they know how to read a graph. So here's a similar graph, different colors, similar capacity for sustaining life. Um, so don't tell us you don't know what it's about. Um, and I think it's just the feeling that there's, you know, there's this kind of feeling of dread within our community that that mum and dad are just too busy arguing in the front seat and they don't know where we're driving. The kids in the back are losing their mind. We as a nation, we just want to know that mum and dad have got this. We want to know that the adults in the room are taking charge and we'll be cool. We'll all be all right. That's all we need and we'll be fine, all right? We'll get on with doing our jobs. You get on with doing yours. And I think through the, through my ability to have a conversation and a rational conversation in public going, well, this is what it sounds like to talk about the reality to discuss the grief of what we're losing, what we will lose, what we cannot ever get back, and then to talk about the opportunity, the extraordinary chance we have right now to rebuild our country for our children, for our grandchildren. Uh, it's astonishing that we don't have these conversations on a wider level. And have can you tell us what your audience is feeling when you have these conversations, what kind of feedback you get, particularly on your climate conversations? What, what are they saying to you? 
I think it's a two-handed thing because I, I don't think you can fully appreciate, you know, the the way I try to talk about it, Dan, it's, I think that it's not like we don't have the ability to discuss this. We have all the ability to handle the psychology behind inaction on climate already, uh-huh. okay? It is the, the same denial, and I can speak to this from my own experience as uh, someone who's been sober 10 and a half years. It's the same denial that you have around alcoholism or the same denial you have to anything you're addicted to. The amount of um, justification, the amount of manipulation, the amount of lying, the amount of, I don't know, should be right, should be right. The amount of constantly you using this thing that you know is ultimately going to kill you, but you're so terrified of change and you just can't picture any other way. You keep doing it. Um, that is, that's the same for alcohol, gambling, sex, whatever. Here we are folks. Here we are. But the thing about being addicted is it's a life of restriction. When you're addicted to anything, things just get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Once you find your way into sobriety from that addiction, once you become recovered from that addiction, the opportunities just explode. All right. And I've seen this time and time and time again, the same psychological things that we have within our brains uh, that we've used to find help for people who are addicted to substances, we can use to help people find out of this situation. I totally agree with you in there. Like just even having a summit like this is really important by having people who are knowledgeable and understand what the future could look like to be able to paint what that future looks like can unlock a whole bunch of hope in everyday people like you, like you and me. Sorry, Mike, I'm not counting you like an everyday person because you're in this industry. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know, regular Joes to kind of think big about what the future could look like. Um, Mike, listening to this for you, who has someone who has put climate at the centre of their business and their businesses and someone who has really put their money where their mouth is, what should other businesses do? Like what's what's a great way, a great simple way to get the ball, ball rolling? If you if you run teams or you, you run businesses, what's the great way to kind of get the ball rolling in this space to really start um, applying pressure to change the way they do things? Um, oh, look, it probably depends on which sort of business you're running, I suppose. For large businesses, I think, and, and again, this is where for me it comes down to economics. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a deep believer, and I should say this at the start, that, that the money like that drives things. Economics drives things. Like economics is a study of human behaviour, actually. It's not a study of money, right? <laughs> uh, it's about utility and, you know, when you get into supply and demand and et cetera, rational actors and game theory and everything else, right? The best way to solve this problem, if you ask me, is solving the economics, and what's frustrating is we've, we've gotten to the point that the economics is favourable. So just like if you have a house in Australia and you're not one of the 3 million households that has panels on the roof and you own that house, I realise if you're entering an apartment building, we've got to solve those problems separately. Putting panels on will save you money. Like it's, it's almost like there's enough financing options out there to get those panels for free onto your roof that you're just kind of giving away money by not having them on your roof, right? Mm. That's an economic problem that's in a good spot. Not quite there yet from batteries, but we will get there, right? If you're running a business, for some reason, people go to their business and don't think the same way, right? One of the things I, I've done a lot of work with RE100, which is a great group trying to drive globally, started by IKEA and Microsoft and Lego and others. Um, Alassian was one of the first members in Australia. And now we've got, I think, all of the big banks and a whole bunch of other great members. John uh, D. runs out has done a fantastic job driving large-scale corporates to join. The biggest reason that convinces them to join is they will save money for their business. Hmm. Their business will run cheaper, right? And if you want to talk to business and get them to move, that's often the best way to do it, (laughs) right? 
It's like, hey, what if your bill next to you was $8, not $10? They're like, wait, I'm interested now. I'm listening. Yeah. So I do think people's businesses can benefit from this in a financial way, right? And you can feel good while doing it. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about what you're doing. Mm. But the same problem for the, the nation of Australia in terms of this could create shitloads of jobs. Oh, hang on, man. I've seen the guys in high vis and they're not, they're not doing renewables. I'm like... Most of the high-vis jobs being created today are in renewables. Like, <laughs> we're going to have a debate about Narrabri versus a renewable energy zone in terms of jobs. The energy zone will win. This uh, is I, great. I don't know. Um, who, whoever's running Smart Energy Summit's um, video right now, if you could just go back and capture Mike's last 30 seconds, that will be a great gif. <laughs> That's the best. It is the frustration, but you should take that home to your business, I guess, is what I'm saying, is the, the economics of what we have in terms of today's technology is really good for your business, for your household, uh, and for the nation of Australia because of the resources we have. And that is what the story that we need to keep telling. And it takes people a long time to understand that that is the story and to understand that that story will be better every single year, but it's already positive economics for the country, the business, the household. Is that kind of what you fundamentally believe that others don't believe, Mike? What's, is that the disconnect? Yes, I believe it's a finance and economics problem. That's the best way to solve it. That is probably one thing I fundamentally believe that often others don't believe. It's hard to speak for everybody else. (laughs) It's a bit like for me, it's like recycling, right? If I tell you that you should recycle, 5% of the population will be the do-gooders and do the right thing. As soon as I pay you five cents a bottle, it's like 80% of people will recycle or something. And so financial incentives and utilities actually do make a a big sense in the economic world. Um, So I do think it's a finance problem. We should remember that almost all... Almost all renewable technologies are large capital, low input, if not zero input. What that means is all the money is spent up front and, you know, you put panels on your roof, cost you five to ten grand, and then it's free after that. You, you can get up with a chamois and wipe them every so often if you want to. Mm. So the 20 years are free, that's what financing does. Yeah. Financing, loans, et cetera, is about how do we make it so that you can get those panels cheaper, quicker, it's like a credit card or a mortgage, right? These are exactly the same devices. We invented the mortgage in the depression of the 1930s to help people buy houses. And we said, you know what? You're going to live in that house for 30 years. We're going to work out the financing equation. You're going to pay twice the price of the house or whatever it is over the time, but you're going to like having a house. So this is really good. We invented the mortgage. We're constantly trying to do financing activities for all clean technologies because they're generally zero input cost, large scale CapEx up front, where finance is perfect. Um, The second thing that I think I believe in is I believe in learning rates of modular technologies. Deeply, deeply, deeply as a technologist, this is super important and I believe far too few people understand this. What is Um, this? Elaborate on this. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Solar panels, batteries, um, wind turbines, these are modular technologies. By that I mean if I have one panel or a million panels, I just make more of the same thing. Mm. Right. That's why chips get cheaper is because we make slightly better chips and we make bigger factories that make more chips. Right. And actually, the latter fact ends up being more important, right? More of the reduction of the cost of a solar panel now is coming from manufacturing scale and insulation costs than from better science of building better panels. Um, but these are modular technologies. They will always win once they reach the point of scale. That begets the learning rate, which makes them cheaper, which means that they get more scale, which means that they get more learning rate. If you're in technology, we've seen this in chips, We've seen it in cameras. The camera in your mobile phone, in 10 years, 
improved quality per pixels per dollar a thousandfold. Mm. Right? So it got either a thousand times cheaper or it got a hundred times cheaper and ten times more powerful or some combination, right? This is the way that technology works when that technology is modular. Lots of technologies are not modular, and that is unfortunate. So those learning rates do not apply to everything, but they do apply to solar batteries, et cetera. And they are like Moore's law in chips, Swanson's law in solar. These laws aren't laws of physics, but they will happen next year. Mm -hmm. I've had discussions with politicians where I say, do you realize that batteries have gotten like 10 times cheaper or three times longer lasting or twice as light or any of these sort of facts? And they're like, yeah, but you don't know that will happen next year. And I'm like, ah, but I do. (laughs) <laughs> right? I can't tell you in the next three months, but I can tell you if I look two, three, four years, that will absolutely continue. Mike, don't take this the wrong way, but um, with, with your hair and stuff, it looks in your hoodie, you could be like a wizard of technology. But th- this is like, if we understood this, again, we would never build any more fossil technologies at large scale because yeah. 30 years from now, it, it won't make sense. Yeah. Right, ten years from now, it won't make sense, and we kind of know that based on today. But we seem to we struggle with that future pricing equation a lot. The learning rate of modular technologies has to be understood, as has the financing equation. Osh, what about the the scalability of podcasts? Are there enough of podcasts to to reach enough people to convince them to jump on board this clean energy train? I don't, I don't know how many middle-aged white men are there because uh, we all need a podcast. Look, honestly, I'm just 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 vibing on Mike Cannonbrook's extraordinary, like Alan Mulally-esque kind of ability to restructure and recreate our, uh, you know, this problem and looking at it like an engineering problem. And I really have to agree with what Mike was talking about there. As heartbreaking as it is, and you're here on this Zoom because you have seen the graphs and you know what's going to happen. So you are here from an emotional reason, probably. All right. There's very few people here from a financial reason. Once it becomes a financial reason, this will change overnight. And I've got to acknowledge it, how much it sucks to wait for that economic reason to become viable. But unfortunately that is the way of the world and um, we just have to wait, but it'll absolutely, Mike's already talking about these tipping points where things, the, the, the cleaner, greener option is the cheaper, scalable, more replicable uh, option, but we just have to wait for that, which is really, really horrible if you're an endangered species. But that's, you know, that's that's the truth. That's, that's where we are. I would say, Osh, Osh, we've already got that point. It's coming. Right? Like we've already got, no, 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 but we should, we all need to stop saying it's coming. It's here. Right? It is here today. Yeah. Right? In a lot of technology. And we need to say that, that we've reached that point. We are beyond that point. When people talk about the cheapest source of new power generation being renewables, they're telling the truth, but they're also a couple of years late. And so as a community or whatever, we need to stop saying these things are coming in the future. These both will create jobs and cheaper energy. And th- this is like today's world, not tomorrow's world. One of exactly. the things that gets thrown around as FUD, and I'm not saying it's thrown around the FUD, but by the politicians is, yeah, we need some more technology. Like in five years or 10 years or 20 years, we'll get there. I'm like, we're fucking there right now. Yeah. Like we need to keep saying that. I can't stress that enough. I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you, Mike. It just yet, which is like the um, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing, saying like the idea of pushing people to understand that the financial decision is the right decision right now. If it's the emotional decision, that's the thing that people react to. That's people go, oh no, 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 no. But I saw a thing on Facebook. If it's an emotional decision, people want to shut it down and reject it. But if it's financial decision, people go, hang on, what? I can save money. 
and then that's the way that's the way in. So to answer your question, Dan, I don't know how many podcasts, but definitely <laughs> conversations, and it's everyday conversations, and it's it literally is when someone says, "Gee, it's a nice day today." Yeah, it is. It's thirty degrees. It's the fourth of September. <laughs> Shouldn't be thirty degrees. <laughs> question here from Christine Milne, Mike: Have you considered that batteries on on the mainland will eclipse pumped hydro? Uh, uh, storage based in Tasmania and will leave the latter stranded? Uh, look, that's a deep, nuanced energy question. Um, I, I don't, if you're talking about Tasmania, I don't believe they'll leave the latter stranded because they're already built. Um, so, pumped hydro has a 50 year lifetime, and if you've already kind of paid off the capex, then you should be okay with that. Pumped hydro is a good example of a non modular technology. Every time you build pumped hydro, largely, the pumps are modular. But the engineering required to work out this piece of water, that bit of water, the, the pipes, the pumps, the, the angles, like it's an engineering project. Engineering projects are not very scalable. I can find any field and roll out solar panels with, you know, very, very quickly. So, yes, they will. I think one of the big things for Australia is probably about Snowy Hydro and Snowy Hydro 2 and specifically whether that's a good investment or a bad investment. Um I generally fall down that that's a good investment, not a great investment. It is not the best thing we could have done with that amount of money, but it's not a terrible thing to do with the money, right? From the point of view of, of storage. Um, will batteries be cheaper by the time that is ready? That is a great question. Yeah. Another question uh, about the New South Wales government, which today has announced the Narrabri, the Narrabri gas project is going ahead. Mike, what are your thoughts on, on that project? Does it have a chance? Of being financed. Oh, man, you're going to get me in a shitload of hot water here. Um, <laughs> firstly, I think it was the Independent Planning Commission that said they could go forward, from what I understand, not the New South Wales I'm not sure how the relationship between those two, to be fair, but I'm not sure if it was the New South Wales government that stamped that. I'll, I'll check. I'll, um, get my, I'll get my people. Look, I can, I can ethically disagree with that. At some level, I have to hope that they've all done their correct work on planning and everything else and have the right controls. I don't know if the project will go forward from a financing perspective. If I was Santos and looking at the finances, I would think that would be a struggle to get up and running. Um, you know, you need to be betting on $8 a gigajoule gas a long time in the future for that to all make sense. Look, if they're going to put private capital and we've done the environmental concerns, that's fine. I, I don't have to agree with it personally, right? But at some level, you can't just always be tearing down the structures that we have. That said, do I think it's necessary or going to bring Australia's power prices down? Absolutely not. Like, let's, I'm very clear with gas. Give me the word after gas. And then let's separate all these concepts because the bl blurring of the stories gets very confusing. Like I said on Q&A, there's the extraction, there's the transport, there's the processing. Totally different things and totally different timescales, right? If you're talking about the next three to five years, you ain't building any of that in three to five years, right? Yeah. They'll probably still be debating various concerns about groundwater and salt and all absolutely valid things to be debating three years from now. Do you get um, a, do you get phone calls from the gas lobby, Mike? Do you get phone calls saying, hey, Mike, let's turn methane into usthane. Get on our side. <laughs> I just wanted to say that joke. Uh, another question from Blair. You're, you're going to be telling me that we've got coal in the coalition and I'm going to tell you there's also lithium-ion. 
Hey. Very good. There's an L-I-I-O-N in there, right? We've just got to flip it from one to the other. Blair asks, Mike, how can the current government refuse to even see the economic benefits and pick a polluting now-done energy source such as gas when it so clearly doesn't make financial sense? Um, so, like, what, what is that What is um, that decision, do you think, in your mind that, that they've made? Look, this is where a politician has a very different job than I do. That's how our society works, right? Um, I understand that they are trying at some level to navigate themselves away from coal and get to other things, right? And and the way that the transition fuel is also a transitionary policy platform of fossil fuels that gets you kind of away without an elegant dismount. I don't think we need that dismount, right? But you might need it if you're trying to get elected. That's totally different. We don't need it from an energy point of view. We don't need it from a, a country point of view. We don't need it from an economic point of view. However, they are, we should give them credit. Again, sometimes people like to make these things black or white, and the answer is, is always a bit of gray. We should give them credit. The largest announcement made two weeks ago um, was a couple of hundred million bucks for renewable en- energy infrastructure, transmission infrastructure. That was the largest dollar commitment. The largest job commitment was the same thing. So, Sometimes the announcement that's important gets buried in the, you know, the other stuff. Secondly, I think it's really important. And what I would like to keep repeating, (laughs) there was an implicit, we're moving to 100% renewables in those announcements. This is the first time the government has said that. On the other side, we had Albo saying we're going to be a renewable energy superpower. Let's focus on the long arc of time. That was a stratospheric shift from our current government to implicitly say whether they said we're moving to 100% renewable, therefore we need gas, let's spend a lot of time talking about gas. Wait a second, let's go back to what you just said up front. You admitted we're moving our grid to 100% renewables and beyond. That's a big step. I get why you didn't make that the headline, even though I would have made that the headline. <laughs> and you can argue it's took too long, doesn't matter. Yeah, We're going to get there. Uh, do you, right? is, it gonna, is it going to be like the NBN? Like they'll, they'll say that in 50 years' time. They'll be like, oh, you know what? We were wrong back then. We're actually going to really go Market zero forces. down. Again, again, one of the reasons we're trying to keep modest, I suppose, about this Liddell replacement thing, and they've already come down from 1,000 megawatt hours, which, by the way, is a classic. If you're a politician, you make it sound bigger. You can't make it one gigawatt. What are they? Uh, what are they? You make say? It a thousand what? megawatts because it sounds bigger. I'm like, well, let's make it a million kilowatt plant. It's a billion watts. Like, I don't understand the numbers, but anyway, let's just say it's already gone from a thousand megawatts to two fifty. All right, wow. I put Jeez. my money that that never gets built. I think it was Simon Holmes Accord who said that it, that he, he. I read a tweet from his um, last week that a 250 megawatt plant was run by 13 people. Think of all the job it will create. <laughs> a 250 megawatt plant, we install that much residential solar every month in this country. Wow. 250 megawatts a month, right? So let's go forward three and a quarter years. That's 10 gigawatts of residential solar installed without any growth whatsoever. If it flatlines from here and it's growing like this, so if it flatlines, we'll get 10 gigawatts. 250 megawatts, as much as people want to say it's big, it's fucking tiny. Right? It's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of our grid. It won't get built unless the government forces it in with subsidies. And if they do, tell us how much the subsidy is or how much the investment is, and I'll give you three, four, five better options. 
straight away. There was something there was something really telling, uh, I think, on Insiders when Spearsy was interviewing ScoMo talking about uh, not committing to the net, uh, net zero 50 and ScoMo was like, oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get to net zero 50 by the end of the century. I was like, oh, that's so frustrating. And I think Keitan Joshi uh, wrote a great piece saying, well, by the government's own admission, their emissions will get to net zero by uh 2300. I don't think, I don't think that's, I don't think we have a long arc of time is what, is what Blair's replied to me saying we don't have a long arc of time as well. I don't think we have that long arc of time to actually make these changes. Um, how can we accelerate that? How can we put pressure on as, uh, as voters um, to get our politicians to accelerate those changes, to push for net zero 50 or net zero by 30 in the process? It's got to be where you spend your money, Dan. We vote every three years or whatever down the state schools, but we vote every single day where we spend our dollars. Uh, I think there was a like a 2014 study out of Princeton that showed that public protest often has a like a near zero impact on on government policy. What makes people stand up is where people are suddenly not spending their money. That's where decisions get made and we have that choice. As a nation, we have that choice. If we all decided to go like one day a week, uh, without buying petrol, people would lose their minds. If the whole nation went, well, that's it, we're not buying petrol for a week because we're not upset about what the fuel lobby's done, it would be a change overnight, all right? We have that power. We absolutely have that power. It's just in the organisation. Um, and it's where you spend your money. As Mike was saying, if you start, if the rooftop solar keeps going in that direction, um, there's no way that the industry won't adjust to that. But that's people making a decision on the bottom line of their household budget, 100%. And that's where we have the ability to affect change every single day. You are not powerless. Every dollar you spend is a vote. Uh, thanks, Osha. That was brilliant. I think we're out of time. Um, so big thanks to Mike Hennenbrooks and Osha Gunsberg. Uh, it's been a real privilege talking with you and yelling with you about uh, climate change and energy transitions. Uh, I had a real wonderful time. And uh, really, this is a, a highlight of my year so far. And let's face it, it's 2020, so low standards. But still, pretty good stuff, I have to say. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, everyone. GM Pook. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Well, Lynn, what did you think of that? That was great. Um, I was surprised by how entertained I was. I mean, it makes sense. You had one of Australia's most famous TV people. Although, that said, um, given given that Osher did name drop a university, I feel I need to name drop a university ah. as well. Um, so I'm going to name drop Harvard. So there's a Harvard academic called Erica Jenworth who actually believes civil disobedience is not only the moral choice that we have for combating climate change or any sort of other social issue, but it's one of the most powerful ways of shaping world politics. So her research, um, one of the things I've geeked out on, looks at hundreds of campaigns over the last century and it's found that if 3.5% of the population engage in a social issue, it has never failed to bring about political change. So yes, it's important where you spend your money, for sure, but actually, that's really important. In Australia, what, what does that look like? That looks like 900,000 people actively engaging. So, you know, last year's school strike alone, we had 300,000 people attend and, you know, there were many people who couldn't make it, myself included. I had the flu. Um, and, you know, even pre-COVID, I knew it wasn't good for me to go and spread my germs. <laughs> but we look at some of the populations around the world that, you know, have taken measurable action on climate change. And what do you know? 3.5% of their population has engaged. So Canberra, which is, you know, as mentioned, 100% renewable energy powered now, uh, they had over 3.5% of their population go to the climate marches last year. The same's the case in New Zealand as well and a bunch of other places around the world. So uh, dear listeners, 
Never forget, political action is still important. But other than that, great interview. <laughs> Lynn, can we get Erica Chenworth on the show? That would be amazing. Um, I don't think she's a billionaire and I don't think she's very famous on TV. <laughs> but I think she has like some phenomenal thoughts around actually we can do more than just vote and we can do more than just spend our money how we show up and how we use our voices i think matters just as much big thanks to road mics bertha foundation go neutral jacob round on the teppanyaki timeline also big thanks to the smart energy council for letting me publish this audio from this session here irrational fear is back in two weeks we're having a little bit of a break because we've been so flat out with nina oyama and greta lee jackson and the week after that with zoe coombs and conchetta caristo and We'll be back with the greatest moral podcast of our generation in November where we chat with Jesse Mosby and Sophie Marginak who are organising a gigantic campaign for the Torres Strait to take the Australian government to the UN to fight them on their lack of climate action. It's a fascinating chat. Uh, you'll be in tears. I've just started editing it now. It's it's really great. I can't wait to listen to that. Given our track record, I would think that they have a really good chance of winning. And there's so many cases again around the world of people taking their governments to action. So good on the crew up north. One of the interesting things about that chat um, I, I've had with those folks is that Sophie was saying that it doesn't matter if the UN comes down on the side of the Torres Strait and Australia does nothing. It's often just a precedent. Like setting that precedent will allow other populations to take their countries to court and get the same result and then those countries can take action. So even if we do fuck all, that's something special we can give to the rest of the world. Great. It's the least we can do given we won't even sign a biodiversity pledge. Thanks for listening to Irrational Fear's greatest moral podcast of our generation. Until next time, there's always something to be scared of. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.